so in 2016, uh, I was still working as a full-time firefighter. It's something I used to do. And on the first day of the Horse River Fire, me and my crew of four uh, were working on Thickwood Boulevard uh, between Dickens Field and Wood Buffalo. It was our job that day to stop the fire from crossing from Wood Buffalo into Dickens Field. And uh, it was a long stretch of ground for only four people to cover, too much ground for only four of us to cover. Uh, I was particularly motivated that day to do a good job because Dickens Field is where uh, I grew up. It's where I'm raising my kid. I've been raising my kids. It was home, right? All my memories were uh, right behind me in Dickens Field, and we had been at it for most of the day. Uh, the work was grueling, uh, and like many of us who fought that day, we were running on fumes late in the afternoon. Uh, as we things progressed, uh, I looked away from the fire that was right in front of us on the tree line and turned around and I had, was able to see that looking back into Dickens Field that there was a fence that had caught on fire. And up until that point in the day, we had been successful at preventing the fire from crossing the road. Uh, and I had be damned if I was going to fail in that moment. And so I called out to the guys and one of two of us started racing towards this fence. It was about uh, 500 meters away, a long distance. Uh, for, for a guy like me, and uh, we started racing as fast as I could uh, towards this fire. We couldn't bring our hoses with us, so my plan was to use like a garden hose to stop it once I got there, and to jump the fence and to, to use the garden hose. And I don't know what I was thinking as I approached this fence. I was convinced that I was going to have superhuman strength and be able to just like leap like a gazelle over the fence, but as I got closer, it got bigger. It's bigger and bigger. And I'm not, guys, I have no shame, right? I, I ran to this fence, tried to jump over it. I didn't jump at all, and I ran full speed in, into the fence. Um, I'm surprised I didn't barrel right through it. Um, my legs just didn't work. They were done. The fence did what it was designed to do. It kept me out of the backyard just for a few minutes. But this is what fences do. That's their job. They keep things out or they keep things in. That's what they're supposed to do. Last summer, uh, we sent our son Justice on a four-night horseback wilderness adventure in Nordeg in western Alberta. And it was in the middle of nowhere in cougar and grizzly bear territory. And me and Adrian were a little nervous to send him so far into the wilderness alone, except for one small note on the website of this tour. It said that they had electric fences to protect from the bears and the cougars. And I was like, okay, we'll send them. It'll be fine, right? They've got an electric fence. And we drove about an hour past cell service into the bush uh, and finally got to this camp and uh, dropped him off. And I was talking to the cowgirl or I don't know how you say it, cow lady. She, had a, she was way tougher than I am. She had like a rope and a hat and boots and everything. This cow lady. Uh, and I asked her, I was like, where, I was like, where is the electric fence? Because I saw the tents where the kids were going to sleep. And I didn't see the electric fence. And she's like, oh, it's over there. Guys, the electric fence was to protect the horses, not the kids. It went around the horse corral. Uh, to protect the horses and the kids were left on their own. So you put up fences to keep things out or to keep things in. And here's the thing is often this is exactly what we end up doing 
with our faith, specifically when it comes to the person of Jesus. We have our preconceived ideas about him, things that we were taught about him when we were younger, maybe things that we learned about him from people who called themselves Jesus followers. He's behind this fence. He's contained. He's safe there. He's stuck there. And sometimes, more often than not, we are content to leave him there exactly as we know him and exactly as we want him. Now, if you think this sounds silly or just kind of like a a weird idea, uh, it's not just figurative. In the past, there was a literal barrier that separated people from God. Very early in the history of Israel, the people of God, they became discontent. They looked around at the other religions in the world and they saw that all of them had these beautiful temples, ornate temples uh, where they would go and to worship their deities. And the Israelites, well, all they had was a tent. They had a special tent that they put the tabernacle of God in. And and so they, they felt they were discontent. They wanted a beautiful temple where they could worship their God. And so King David decided that he was gonna build a magnificent temple for God. A place with several different courtyards that slowly got smaller and smaller for, for holy on the outside, but really holy once you got deep into the center court. And then at the center was a place called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. A place no human was allowed to go. A place for God's presence alone. This final room would be separated from humanity by a hanging veil a beautiful purple, blue, and scarlet fabric hung in place by gold and silver clasps. And the Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote down in history for us that the veil was four inches thick. We're talking a serious barrier preventing humans from crossing into the most holy of holies. And after David decided that he wanted to build this temple for God to reside in, this is what God told him through the prophets. This is God. He says, are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent and a tabernacle as my dwelling. And yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people of Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? It seems to me, and I'm no expert, but it seems to me that God didn't particularly want a temple. It seems to me that he wasn't too fond of the idea of having a singular place in the world where his followers had to go to worship him. It seems to me that he seemed to prefer moving through the world with his people, alongside his people. But like God has done many times throughout the ages, he made a concession for his people and allowed David and eventually Solomon to build the temple. And so God's people put God behind a wall, a priest, and a veil. And we still do this today. We find ways to keep Jesus at arm's length. We find ways to keep Jesus in the church building, even though Jesus wants to walk beside us, even though he wants to be close enough 
to whisper to us, even though he likes being on the road with us. We find fit ways to keep him contained. Now, let me give you a real-world example of this sort of thing for my own life. I've lived in Fort McMurray a long time, 31 years-ish, uh, and for Fort McMurray uh, has always been to some degree kind of a transitory place, right? People move here, and, you know, they make some money, and then they move away. It's less so like that now than it has ever been, uh, but it still kind of exists, and for someone like me who's been here so long, what that has meant over the past 30 years is that I have many times opened up my life to someone, became friends, became best friends, became vulnerable, uh, shared my life with people, only to have them end up disappearing, right? Moving to another city. And one of the side effects of this in my own personal life is that I have been less willing to be vulnerable and and, and make new friends. It sounds weird to me saying it out loud, but I have put up a wall, a guard, to prevent me from being hurt again over and over again like, like my friends who have left me in the past. This is a little embarrassing to say, just so you know. You're, you're, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it, it, you build up a wall to protect yourself from disappointment. Um, I still love everybody that moved, but they're dead to me now. <laughs> I'm not telling you to be like this. I'm just confessing <laughs> that this is the way that I am. And when it comes to Jesus, many of us have built up emotional fences just like this. For whatever reasons, uh, maybe we're wary of Jesus, right? We don't trust him. Maybe we're worried that if we truly get to know him, he's going to ask something of us that we don't want to do. That if we're truly vulnerable with him and share our true selves with him, that somehow we may end up hurt. But Jesus is not content with just knowing you on the surface. He's not content with just being Facebook friends or acquaintances. He wants to know you in a personal, hold-nothing-back sort of way. And today is the last day of our beautiful Outlaw message series that we've been, a series where we've talked about the personality of Jesus, how he is gentle and kind and maybe even a little bit playful, how he is true and righteous and honest and willing to flip over a table if he needs to. And we've talked about how he has invited us to know him in these more intimate ways, in these more personal ways, not just a stained glass Jesus the Jesus who is knowable and personable and real. Let me tell you about a time that Jesus showed this so very well to his closest friends. John tells us about a night that Jesus did something very unexpected. John was one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, and he had a front row seat to the life of Jesus. And knowing that he had witnessed something special, in the life of Jesus. John wrote it down, and we call it, it's a document that has been preserved through the ages, this book of John that describes the life of his friend, Jesus. And John tells us, so he, Jesus, got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. See, Jesus is at dinner this night, with his closest friends. It would be the last meal that he, would sh that he would share with them. And John tells us that Jesus got up from the dinner table, that he 
wrapped, he took his, his, his outer robe off, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and then he got down on his knees and began to wash the feet of the disciples. And I think we need to take a moment just to step back. This is not just a weird Bible story. This, this, let's, let's put ourselves in this story and try to understand just what is happening. I need you to think about the per, a person in this world that you respect the most, someone you're maybe a little intimidated by, maybe somebody that, that you, you've never met, but somebody, somebody who, who you deeply respect and you can't pick Jesus, that's cheating. Maybe it's an author or a hockey player or a scientist, you just can't pick Jesus. Now imagine this person has invited you to their home for dinner. Now imagine that to get to your, their home, you had to walk through the Near Eastern Desert in sandals on a hot and muggy day. Your feet need a power washer to get properly cleaned. Now imagine this person, this person in your mind, they, when you arrive, they fill a bowl with warm water and Epsom salts, tie a bowl around, or a towel around their waist, and they get down on your knees and they begin to scrub your feet with their bare hands. This is unthinkable. This is so uncomfortable. We would, this would make each one of us squirm. I don't care if you like pedicures or not. This, the, the power dynamics and the uncomfortableness, we would, this is so unfathomably weird, this story. It shouldn't happen, and yet here is Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. And sure, as we read this story, there's something here to learn, you know, that we can learn about humility. There's, you know, it's kind of a perfect example of Jesus' upside-down kingdom where he talks about the greatest will be least and the least will be greatest. There's something that we can learn here about what it means to serve each other with kindness and love and humility. That's, those are not the things I want us to think about in this story today. I think it's those things, but I think this story is also an invitation an invitation into a deep, vulnerable relationship with Jesus. There is a closeness, an intimacy. And Jesus wanted the disciples to know just how much he loved them, just how much he valued them. Jesus was showing how far he was willing to go to care for them. And the story goes on, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, it was Peter's turn to get his feet washed. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday, Peter, you will. And then Peter said, no, you will never wash my feet. Peter was ready to nope right out of there. This was too much for him. It was too uncomfortable. Jesus was going too far. Peter always makes things interesting. If you read about him in the gospel, he's, he's an incredibly interesting person. He always says exactly what he's thinking. He's the kind of person often puts his foot in his mouth. And in this story, at least that foot is about to be a clean foot. Peter thinks he's being reverent, right? No, Jesus, you can't, I'll never let you wash my feet. He thinks he's being noble. Jesus, I will never let you stoop that low. But all he has done is attempt to put up a fence between him and what Jesus wants to do with him. And Jesus looks up at Peter and he just simply says, Peter, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. To which Peter says, then wash my hands and my head and my feet and my all, wash me all. 
right, Peter? All or nothing kind of guy. This moment makes me smile, and it's, they didn't, John didn't write down that this happened, but I believe it made Jesus smile too. I love Peter. I love his brashness. I love his willingness to screw up and to fix things. And I believe Jesus loved him too. Unless I wash you, Peter, you won't belong to me. It's an invitation to belong, to share, to friendship. No temples, no inner walls, no outer walls, no ornate veil hanging between the two of them. Just Peter and Jesus with no distance between them. You see, Jesus was always closing the distance. It's something he did. Jesus established a new way for humanity, for people to relate to God. He reclined with people at meals. He stopped along the road to chat. He touched the untouchable and he loved the unlovable and he called people by name. That night, Jesus gave all of his best friend pedicures. And then they shared a meal together. And they laughed. And John laid his head on the shoulder of Jesus so close to him that he could hear his heartbeat. And then Jesus gave a moving speech about how he must leave them so the Holy Spirit could come. They, they didn't really understand at the time, but they listened anyway. And then Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was arrested. He was beaten and mocked. He was convicted of crimes that he, did not that he did not commit himself. Lesser men than him raised their hands and punched him. He was dragged up the hill of Calvary where they nailed him to a tree. Alone and rejected and abandoned, there he suffered for several hours. And then lifting his eyes to the heavens, Jesus said his last words and breathed his last breath. And his heart stopped beating. And at that moment, at that very moment that his heart stopped beating, the moment Jesus died, miles away, at the temple of God, the temple that David and Solomon had built for God, past the guard, past the outer courts, past the holy rooms, towards the holiest of holy rooms, something happened. The veil that stood between the guarded presence of God and prevented humans from knowing God in intimacy, was ripped from top to bottom. When Jesus died, the holiest of curtains was ripped in half. And who was it who did that? It wasn't the priests. It was God himself. He took the veil that we had put between us and him, and he tore it into two. I think this is what Paul was talking about when he wrote, read, wrote down Romans 8. He said, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, the answer is no. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. 
And Paul says this, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The question is, what can separate us from the person and the presence of Jesus and the torn veil hanging in the temple shouts triumphantly, nothing can separate us from God's love. Whatever fences you have put around Jesus, he is ready to help you tear them down. Whatever preconceptions you may have about him that prevent you from knowing him more deeply, he is ready to remedy with you. Whatever towers you've built to guard yourself from being hurt or to protect yourself, he is ready to help you begin dismantling that brick by brick. This week, I spent some time with my friends Sandra and Selby. Uh, Selby's the guy who kicked me out of my seat during worship earlier. Uh, and uh, I spent some time with Sandra. That was, guys, we're friends. I can be mean to him from the stage. Right? We're friends, right? For a few more minutes. I spent some time with Sandra and Selby, and we got to talking like Fort McMurray people do about the fire. And Sandra told me this incredibly heartwarming story. Uh, she and Selby had evacuated during the fire, and they, like many, had evacuated so quickly that she didn't take any clothes with her. She didn't have anything to wear, and they, she, she found her in Leduc. It was, they were in Leduc. And after a day or so, uh, Selby said, Sandra, you stink. We need to get you new clothes. This is not, not going to work for me anymore. And so Sandra and her friend went to the Reitmans in town, and it was late at night. There was nobody in the parking lot. When they get there, they went to the door, and the door was locked. They had, cl they had just closed. And Sandra, disappointed, uh, turned around and started walking away. And when somebody, suddenly somebody, one of the employees from Reitman's, opened the door and said, hey, can I help you? And Sandra is incredibly gracious. I don't know if you've had the chance of discovering that yourself. But she just said, no, I, I need some clothes, but I'll come back tomorrow. And the person... I like to imagine they're a Christian and that they're feeling God speak to them in this moment. But it, that's part of the story I'm just making up. And the person just looked at Sandra and said, are you from Fort McMurray? Sandra said, yes. And the person said, come in. And they opened everything up, turned the lights back on. And Sandra was able to get some clothes. You guys, this morning, right now, in this moment, Jesus stands at the door inviting you to share his hope, his love, and his light. He stands at the door inviting you to know him in a way that will change your life forever. He stands at the door smiling and waiting for you. This morning, if you've never decided then you want to know that you want to know Jesus. This could be the day. This could be the day that you decide that you want to know this very special person. The day you want to decide to follow him for the very first time. The day you want to remove those fences that we've built up to prevent you from being vulnerable with God. 
That might be you. And this morning, I want to invite you in a moment. We're going to pray a prayer together, and you can pray it with me for the first time. Decide that you want to know Jesus. But there's other people here as well. People like me who have been Christians a long time. People who, like me, have been coming to church a long time and serving and doing all the things. And this morning for you, I want to encourage you in this moment to invite Jesus to reveal himself new and fresh to you again. That you would know him more intimately, more personally. That he wouldn't just be somebody that you leave at church on Sundays when you go back to your life, but that he would be a person that you share your life with your ups and your downs. We're going to pray a prayer that we've prayed the last four weeks together. A prayer inviting God, inviting Jesus to reveal himself to us new and afresh. And so we're going to pray it again together this last week of our beautiful outlaw series. And so I'm going to pray it. You can repeat after me out loud. And then I'm going to pray a blessing over each one of us. So let's pray this together. Jesus, show me who you really are. I pray for the true you. I want the real you. I ask for you. Spirit of God, free me in every way to know Jesus as he really is. Open my eyes to see him. Deliver me from everything false about Jesus. And bring me what is true. Jesus, I thank you this morning for each person here in this room and who's joined us online. I thank you that you love each and every one of us. And I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us as someone who loves us and cares about us, someone who smiles upon us, someone who sits with us in our suffering, someone who we can share our life with. And Jesus, I just pray today for each one of us that we would leave this place with a new revelation of Jesus, a new truth about how much you care about us, a new truth about how you feel about us. And Jesus, I pray that as we leave this place that we would gain a hunger to, to know you deeper, a hunger to discover you through the word, of, uh, through the Bible, discovering you in the pages of scripture, a, a hunger to pray, uh, to go to you in prayer and to listen for your speaking and your guiding in our lives, a hunger to be the representative of Jesus in the world around us, being your love and kindness to our friends and family and coworkers and strangers. Jesus, I thank you that you love us. Help us to know it again fresh and new. Pray this in the holiest of names. Amen. Amen.